I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to the 47th episode of the Talking Golf History Podcast. In the entire history of the game of golf, you would have a hard time finding a story that eclipses that of Walter Travis. He is golf's version of the American dream, an immigrant of Australia who swung his first club at the age of 34, winning his first tournament a month later, and three years after that, winning the first of four major championships, becoming Australia's first major champion. Walter Travis is the near-mere image of one of his golfing heroes, Willie Park Jr. Travis became America's version of golf's renaissance man. The man his peers lovingly called the old man was a major championship winner, author, teacher, architect, and publisher. His presence in our game today can be felt on nearly every golf course that exists in North America. Bear in mind, the stories that you hear today on our podcast about the four-time major winner, architect, author, and publisher all happened in a span of only 30 years. Before we start our show today, I once again would like you to consider joining the Golf Heritage Society. If you love golf's history and want to learn more about it, connect with fellow lovers of the game, or perhaps you're interested in collecting anything from golf pencils to championship trophies, the Golf Heritage Society can connect you with golf's historical experts. Check out their website at www.golfheritage.org. Our guest for today's show is Ed Holmesy, who is the co-founder of the Walter Travis Society. I'm not going to lie to you, I'm a great admirer of Ed Holmesy. Not only did he, along with others, form a society that pays tribute to one of golf's greatest contributors, but his love for all things Travis is infectious. Incidentally, Ed turns 90 years old this Christmas and has been married to the love of his life, Shirley, for the last 65 years. Before we jump into our interview, please check out the Walter Travis Society website at www.traviscociety.com. Ed, welcome to the 47th episode of the Talking Call History Podcast. Thank you, Connor. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Looking forward to it. I think we're going to have a good time today. Um, Ed, how did you become so interested in Walter Travis? What's your story there? Well, I it uh, goes back a ways, but... Uh, uh, my wife and I belonged to uh, Stafford Country Club in Western New York, and uh, with a course that was designed by Travis in 1921. I didn't pay, I guess, a lot of attention to that. I mean, I was aware of it. But in '93, um, um, Shirley gave me a Christmas gift. Um, it just happens to be right here. It almost always is right nearby. Um, the uh, Architects of Golf, 
uh, by um, Jeff Carnish and uh, Ron Witten. And I really became immersed in that. And um, um, as you know, Travis was uh, featured uh, in, in uh, at least one section of the book. So that really got me interested in Travis. Before that, I was aware that we had some reciprocal clubs uh, that were designed by Travis, um, Orchard Park Country Club over in um, Orchard Park, New York. It was originally the Park Club. And um, Cherry Hill Club over in Southern Ontario and Lookout Point over in Southern Ontario. And by that time, I'd established some connection with those folks. I really enjoyed going to those uh, courses so when I proposed this Travis Cup competition, I got immediate interest from uh, Lookout Point and from Orchard Park, and we had a meeting uh, in 1994 to begin uh, to develop uh, the specific plans for the Travis Cup. And, um, and it was great to see the kind of enthusiasm that each of the participants in that meeting had for their course and for Walter Travis's uh, role in designing their courses. So I guess, you know, the expansion of my interest, the real trigger to it was that book, The Architects of Golf. It's, a, as you say, it's a, it's a wonderful book. And um, even though um, I, I don't know that the, my old friend Bob LeBance would, uh, uh, maybe I'll let that go. He, he helped Jeff Cornish. Yeah. He provided a lot of input into that book. And he sort of knows some of the details in there that maybe could have been different. But he had huge respect for Jeff, and uh, I won't say any more about that. Yeah, that's fine. So you became the, essentially a co-founder of the Walter Travis Society. Did that basically come out from that annual golf tournament? Did that kind of naturally evolve? From that 19, uh, fall 1994 meeting, from that point on, uh, everybody kind of agreed to the basic uh, structure of the Travis Cup and how we were going to conduct that. And and uh, we developed some rules and regulations and that kind of thing. And um, the following spring, uh, well, after that, each year we'd, we would have at least a couple of meetings. And starting, I would say, in 95, each portion of, of each, a portion of each meeting was devoted to the Travis Society. And... Um, uh, beginning to, to thinking of how we should form the uh, the society, how could we do it formally by registering it? So the process was developed very rapidly. It wasn't long before we had our mark registered. It wasn't long before, you know, I would say by 1998-99, we were a going organization, meeting regularly, regularly, and um, having having a good time together every time we did that. Well, let me say then, uh, happy 25th anniversary then from it the is. 1995 date. That's fantastic. It is, yeah. Tell me a little bit about the society. Tell me, if you could, what is its general purpose? I know you have a brilliant uh, page on Facebook, a private page uh, dedicated to Walter Travis, but go a little bit beyond that. What does this society do? What is its goals? How can people be a part of it, perhaps? Well, from the very beginning... The purpose was, I guess, twofold. One, of course, was to honor uh, a man who, whom we considered remarkable in terms of his contributions to the game. At the time, we were basically only aware of his 
architectural kind of contributions and uh, and uh, his amateur golf career. And we wanted to promote knowledge and awareness and knowledge of Walter Travis. We wanted to learn more about Walter Travis ourselves. I mean, we were sort of neophytes. Um, he really is like one of the most amazing golfers who have ever lived, ever lived. I, I agree with that, totally. And uh, I think he is underestimated, hugely underestimated in terms of his impact on the game, largely through his journalism. His journalism is just incredible. For years, I've been kind of, I've been working with the idea of developing a complete bibliography and I would say, oh, within the five last five to six years, I've gotten into it very seriously, and I've developed an outline for it. And when you look at that outline, it, it is just impressive in terms of the varied topics that he addressed in his career, or either intimately involved in it or through his writing. It's just it's amazing to me. And we're going to jump into some of that, uh, for sure, specifically how yeah, the American golfer changed golf publications in the United States, gave yeah. a totally different voice that's been heard out there prior. Before we get there, let's, let's start at the very beginning. Uh, Walter Travis picked up the game uh, of golf a couple months shy of his 35th birthday. What do we know about the man before he was the golfer? We know that he was... Um uh, he was from Australia, <clears throat> from Malden, the town of Malden. And he was a bright young man. He did very well in school. And he, he did not want to follow in the footsteps of his father, who was a gold miner. Travis, I'm not sure. I said this before. He was one of 11 children. So he went off to Melbourne when he was in his early 20s and got a job with a uh, hardware company called uh, McLean and Company. He had to be impressive in turn because they... Not long after they hired him, they sent him to New York City, where they were wanting to uh, establish an office. So here's this 23-year-old, <laughs> shipped off to New York City. Incredibly, he just embraced that. I think he, I know that he embraced the idea of being a New Yorker, of being an American, much to the chagrin of his family. He returned to Australia just once when, um, yeah, just um, oh, a few years after uh, he had gone to, maybe three or four years after he had gone to New York City, his company asked him to come back to Australia. They wanted him to organize, organize and, and man their booth at a um, Australian exposition, business exposition, some kind of a world fair sort of a, a, a thing. So he was there. He went back to Australia. He had an opportunity to meet with his uh, with his to see his family, and he left and never to return. Um, though um, he kept in touch, um, he communicated regularly with one of his sisters. His mother, well, his father was killed in uh, in a mine accident when when he was just forty. I'm not sure how Travis would have been. I think it was after he came to the U.S. And uh, so he kept in touch with, uh, with his family, particularly his mom. And uh, a sister, Ethel, wrote several letters, exchanged a lot of letters with him. There was a letter that he got one from one of his brothers, oh, in the early 20s, I believe it was. 
kind of begging him to come back. He was saying, you know, it's easier now to get here. Why don't you come see it? But he didn't. Everything you see, it says that this guy just embraced the life in New York City. Yeah, he loved being a trailblazer. I think that probably shown through in his game, too. Let me ask you this. Was, would he be considered a, a man of means? You know, much of our early amateur champions were well off. Was what would Walter Travis be considered one of those well-off gentlemen? No, I, I remember having a, this conversation with Tom Doak, and um, I was sort of disagreeing with Tom, but I think I was wrong because I was this, I was thinking this guy hopnobbed with people of means like crazy, but no, he was not. On the other hand, the salary he was earning uh, when he was a young man there in New York City was considerably higher uh, than the average uh, wage. So he, he was fairly well off, but not a, certainly not a person of means. I'm not sure that he would ever have moved into that category. Uh, I mean, he wasn't like Deverell Emmett, for example. Sure. Uh, he didn't come or from... Or Charles Blair McDonald. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, almost any of those folks that he dealt with at, uh, at the golf club, no. Do we know uh, how Travis began playing the game of golf? Who introduced him to it? He he was on a business trip in uh, 1896. At that point, he had this circle of friends back home, uh, and they'd form a club called the Niantic Club. And he received word that they had joined a golf club, or they were forming a golf club. He wasn't particularly thrilled with that because he held the game with in some disdain, but Disdain. Yeah, I he, love it. But he bought a set of clubs uh, because he didn't want to be left out from his group. And that was the start of it. Ah, you know, in many ways, Travis's story is probably, at least to me, one of the most relatable golf stories of all time. As many of us golfers, including me, picked up the game later in life. Um, and many of us claim to be addicted to golf. How bad was his addiction, though? I guess you could almost describe it as that. I mean, he devoted just countless, countless hours to practice during that fall of 96. Uh, he devised uh, ways of improving his, uh, his practice. Um, uh, he used smaller golf uh, um, uh, cops uh, uh, to putt to, though I think I don't think he wasn't the first to do that, but he installed small uh, cups. And uh, uh, to uh, improve his putting, he, as I said, he just practiced re relentlessly. And the, the success that he had, I think his, his first trophy, which I recall in some article he wrote that he held in the highest regard, was a gold cup that um, he won in a tournament um, uh, off the top of my head. I can't remember the place. But at some club event in New York City area, in early November of 1896. So like like a month, right? Yeah. A month after starting, two months after starting, he wins his first uh, trophy. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. And with, within a year, he was a person to be reckoned with in local tournaments. So yeah, he was, um, he was dedicated. He was a fanatic. He was compulsive. He, you know, all of those kind of words you could use to, describe a man who was dedicated and focused and and taking care of every detail. How did he learn the game? Uh, I mean, did he have a, a golf coach? Did he read a lot? What were what were sources of education? 
Hutch, there was a book by Hutchinson and a book by Park. Was that book? Um, I forget the name of that. Is Hutchinson the? Uh, it wasn't the badminton library, was it? Yes, 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 yes. Yep. yes that, that, Oddly that, enough, that's, that's literally on my desk right now. <laughs> is it really? It is. It's right <laughs> well, in front of me. Right in front of me. Yeah, it's the badminton book on golf by Horace Hutchinson. Yeah. And then the, the book, uh, Willie Park's book, uh, Golf. He had no instructors. Unbelievable. So it was directly, yeah, it is. It is. So he just absorbed knowledge, took it to the course, and figured his own path. Exactly. So Exactly. One of the craziest things about this whole story is, so he, whiz, he wins this um, event, uh, his first trophy, if you will, like one or two months after starting. He has this meteoric rise to the amateur ranks. And then in 19, or I'm sorry, 1898, he finds himself in the semifinals of the U.S. Amateur. So it's like two years, yeah. <laughs> two years yeah. from swinging a golf club to being in the yeah. semifinals of the U.S. Amateur. How, how can we yeah. explain? How can, can you speak to this meteoric rise in his golfing abilities? Is it just passion or is it, how do we, it's amazing. I think you have to look at it as passion. But in addition to that, I think this guy uh, was a very athletic individual with a great deal of coordination. I mean, he, he uh, was a cyclist. He, uh, he rode his uh, bicycle uh, to back and forth to work in, uh, in Manhattan. He engaged in cycling uh, competitions. He was a tennis player. He was a billiards player. I think he had a lot of natural athletic ability that he was able to take advantage of. And then you add that's this incredible focus, this incredible dedication, and this incredible detailed approach that he took to the game. It's just a... And I think that's the whole ball of wax in a sense. It's unbelievable. And then two years later, age of 38 years old, Walter Travis knocks off the defending two-time U.S. Amateur champion to win his first U.S. Amateur, Finlay Douglas. Ed, what can you Finlay tell Douglas. us about that? I mean, it, I mean, that's four years after learning how to swing a club. He wins the U.S. Amateur. And, and, he, and he's playing against, uh, well, Finlay was, I mean, he was an incredible golfer. Absolutely. And he'd been at the game for a while. So this was, uh, this was no pushover competition. Just, uh, I've always felt, I mean, you know, everyone, every great golfer has risen to the top, has done it with an extreme amount of dedication and uh, passion on top of all kinds of abilities. And I just think that Travis took advantage of all of his capabilities, took advantage of his ability to concentrate on the task at hand and uh, his ability to analyze the task at hand, to plan uh, the task at hand in terms of how he was going to play a shot and so on. I, I probably a whole book be written about that. Yeah, I mean, he obviously was one of the great thinkers around the golf course. That's a very important point, and, and that uh, impacted his play and as well as his architecture. Uh, the way that he could think his way around a golf course. Ed, do we know anything about his game? Uh, we know he was a great putter, one of the greatest of all time. Do we know anything about the rest of his game? Well, the main thing I think we know is, is that it certainly is his putting, but we also know that he wasn't a long hitter. And he was probably among the shortest of the hitters, a, a, a competitor. He was certainly no 
uh, match for Earl Blackwell, whom he defeated at, uh, in 1904 at the British Am. And so he was always the shortest off the tee. But it was that thinking part of him and planning his round, I think, where he excelled, that he also was excellent uh, with his approach shots. But when he was on the green, I think there was no one who was a match for him. He was just, he was just outstanding. Particularly, he seemed to have a particular knack for sinking long putts. And he did that more than once to his competitors. Ed, he wins that that first U.S. Amateur, and then he goes on a, a, a tear. I think that's the easiest way to, to call it. He goes on a run of U.S. Amateurs over the, over the next years. From the age of uh, 38, he wins his first U.S. Amateur. At the age of 41, he wins his last. Three majors, yeah. three U.S. Amateurs <laughs> in four years. You know, before yeah. we jump into his victory across the pond, maybe if you wouldn't mind, go into... Travis, those U.S. amateurs, and the main rivals he faced here in the United States? Well, Fanley uh, Douglas was certainly a, a major rival, a rival of his. And off the top of my head, I can't tell you how many tombs, but I think if you look at the bottom line that um, uh, Travis, uh, after 1900, pretty much had uh, Fenley. There was Byers who uh, defeated him uh, in uh, 03, or Oh two, oh two, but but then he got some revenge against the buyers the next year, as I recall. Who else in those year, early years? Uh, uh, there are no names that come to me. But you know, I was uh, thinking. Course, uh, how about it was a little bit later, but his rivalry with Jerry Travers was well. Uh, that was one of the yeah, definitely later. But yeah, maybe dive into that a little bit because I think that got edgy at points in time. Well, it did, and. Um, Travers really dominated him for a period of time. And um, they often played very, very close matches. But uh, Travers was from, uh, I mean, and he was, I forget what age he was when he first, when they first played. Was he, was he 17? Yeah, I mean, there was, a, I know there was like a 30-year gap, <laughs> a 30-year gap in their age. Yeah, yeah that's right. But then the last time they played, I think, was in a, a Met Championship. And uh, it wasn't in the finals, but at that point, uh, Travis was, what, 53, and uh, Travers was 27. Um, no, I'm wrong about that. This is a 1914 USM. Let me look. Um, that um, he uh, defeated uh, uh, Travers on the final hole, sunk a 30-foot putt. It was a, it was a fierce rival. Uh, Travers got the best of him many times. But I think there was a great deal of respect between the two of them. And uh, Travers later, I don't have these, I don't have them right at my fingertips. But Travers on more than one occasion had some very complimentary things to say about Travis. Yeah. How could you not, terms of, right? Uh, Travis, yeah. yeah. Uh, as a competitor and uh, just, yeah. So I, I, I think that um, they both ended up respecting each other a lot and, well, was it that last? Was it in the? Um, was it in the? I, I can't remember now whether it was at the 14 USM, where um, um, Travis had bunkered himself, and uh, uh, on the final hole, um, I, 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 I took maybe two or three tries to get out. Finally, picked up his ball, walked up to him, and said, "I'm bunkered," and congratulations. Yeah, something to that. You know, one of the things I find fascinating is. Uh 
you know, you look at back at, at, at some of the books that were written back in those days, um, and this is, you know, one that came after. Uh, some people gave Bobby Jones grief for writing his autobiography down the fairway in 1926 at the age of 24, halfway through his golfing prime. Yet Walter Travis may have outdone him by writing his instructional book in 1901, five full years after learning the game. What was the impact of Walter Travis's book, Practical Golf, 1901? You know, I don't know that I can speak to that completely. I know it got uh, some some great reviews. New York, New York Times gave it uh, uh, quite a bit of, of attention. I don't really have any knowledge as to how well it sold, um, how widespread was it read. Um, it would be interesting to know that. I know, though, that it must have done well enough. They um, produced editions of it and added material to it. So from that, in that sense, uh, it certainly was successful. It is certainly a prized collection item these days to get a copy of, uh, especially the uh, first edition, Practical Golf. But um, that's a good question. I wonder, you know, out there, I, I don't recall reading any reactions from other golfers in terms of uh, how they appraised it, how they uh, felt about it. So I, I can't, uh, I guess let, I let can't. Let me try this, Ed. Um, practical golf covered a variety of topics, including equipment, handicapping, golf instruction, golf course design. And there was a chapter dedicated essentially to the Haskell ball. Ed, I was wondering if you could give your thoughts on Travis, the early adopter. For instance, while some fought the possibilities of new technology like the Haskell ball, like John Lowe overseas, Walter Travis openly embraced it. What do we know about Travis and his adoption of new technology? Because he was—he seemed to always be on the forefront of whatever came out. He'd try it. <laughs> I mean, is that fair? Yeah, oh, absolutely fair. <clears throat> the Hasco is a good example of it, and uh, I mean that changed golf when he used that ball. Uh, to win the O2 uh, amateur. I mean, I just spelled the end of the gutty, and it, it, it changed the construction of, uh, of drivers. And But in addition to that is the use of the, the this connected putter, picking up a new newly developed uh, uh, putter that uh, I introduced him to. Um, and throughout his career, he would experiment with things. He um, wrote a, uh, an interesting article about his experiment with differing uh, shaft lengths of, of drivers, uh, as uh, as an example. He and uh, the doctor that he worked closely with at Columbia and worked with at uh, East Potomac Park, they devised, and I think that um, uh, Travis was kind of a leader in this, devised a new way of planting grass on greens. Interesting. I didn't know this part. Yeah, yeah. And I guess it was very successful. And then you think about his uh, the article you wrote about undulating grass greens. He, you know, he designed Kirkwood Links, which is now Camden Country Club. And initially, as with most clubs or courses in the South, I could remember playing on some. But anyway, almost all of them had grass green. I'm sorry, sand greens. And um, but he had found a way to undulate those sand greens, because generally speaking. Sand greens, all the sand greens I played on, they were flat as a pancake. He um, devised the technique for undulating sand greens. He tried to get a patent for it. Uh, he was turned down. But uh, he wrote a, a fairly interesting article that was published, I can't remember when, about undulating sand greens. But that was just another, I think, 
example of that kind of innovative spirit. Yeah, that trailblazer spirit that took him to America. Yes. Yeah. So, Ed, I, I read somewhere, can you confirm this? I read that technically Walter Travis goes down as the first winner of a major championship, assuming the U.S. Amateur is considered a major, which it was in that time period, using a Haskell ball. Is that correct? That's correct. Amazing. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, it was 1902, I think. 1902, absolutely. So in 1904, Walter Travis, now he's 42 years old, he takes his clubs and his Haskell balls to the United Kingdom. Ed, what can you tell us about that trip to the UK? You're, you're talking about 1904? Yes, 1904. Okay. It didn't look as if it was going to turn out very well for him. I mean, he got there early. And he played around in some courses. I can't remember which courses. And he was having a, his game was just in terrible shape. Uh, he couldn't sink a putt. So when he got to Sandwich, uh, he was not feeling very confident in his game, particularly putting. And of course, he, he depended on putting. A friend of his happened to have his Schenectady putter along and uh, loaned it to, um, to Travis. And from what Travis said, from the very moment that he uh, stroked his first putt, it was like magic and things just clicked. There's something about that story that I, I, I have not been able to reconcile because I know I, in, in his article about how I won the British championship, he refers to his use of the Schenectady there to British M as the first time he had used that putter. But I know that he was introduced to that putter earlier than that by Emmett. Never been able to kind of reconcile that because I haven't been able to nail down what tournaments earlier than that might he have used that. And um, But anyway, that's just one of those discrepancies. I, You know, Ed, for, for those who don't know, I'm well aware of the Schenectady putter. Maybe if you wouldn't mind describing a little bit to our listeners what the Schenectady was or is, and how is it different than the traditional metal or wood putter? I just happen to have one close by. It was designed and, and first manufactured by a uh, engineer uh, who lived in Schenectady, New York, and I think he worked for General Electric. He was a, a fellow by name, my last name was Knight. He was a friend of Devereaux Emmett, and Devereaux would visit him occasionally. In fact, Devereaux, I think he signed their golf course up there. And uh, he showed Devereaux this mallet-headed, metal-headed putter. And Devereaux said, well, I think I know somebody back at the garden club that I think might be interested in it. Can I take one? And so he took one back. Now, I think that this was in either 1900 or 1901. I, I wouldn't swear by that. But and I'm, I'm, I'm pausing because I'm remembering now a note that Travis sent to tonight asking him to send him a couple of putters. And I'm trying to think of the date of that. And I, I can't remember it. Certainly after his victory at the British Am in 1904, some, some of the articles I've read said that the golf pros could not keep a sufficient number of Schenectady putters on on to meet the, de- the demand. Yeah. Well, I heard it was almost called the Travis putter, that, that it wasn't going to be named the Schenectady. Is there any truth to that? There is absolutely truth to that. Uh, Knight wanted to name it uh, Travis, and Travis uh, um, said no. Was that, do you think that was, a, that was that modesty, or do you think that was in fear of losing his amateur status, which was quite strict back then? Well, you're right. And, um, I, maybe anybody's a guess about that, but 
My, I, I kind of think it's the latter. I, I think that uh, he recognized that that could jeopardize his position as an amateur. I'm not so sure he was such a modest fellow that he wouldn't have. <laughs> he would have resisted having it. I don't know that that's what kind of how that says. I mean, there are later, there are putters uh, uh, that were uh, manufactured uh, with the name Travis on it. I've read accounts that he was ill-treated on his trip when he went over to the United Kingdom to contend for the 1904 Amateur at St. George or Royal St. George's Golf Club. Do you, do you know, if, is there any credence to those reports? I, there is some. Um, there was a rebuttal to his 1910 article where he so, sort of unloaded uh, some of his grievances. This fellow Taylor, I can't think of his first name, wrote a rebuttal to the in which um, he agreed that there were some things done that, for example, uh, his, uh, Travis's uh, complaint that, that uh, he just had to undress kind of in the, out in the hallway uh, and it wasn't uh, assigned any kind of special locker or anything of that sort. Taylor pretty much said, well, that was just kind of the practice. It wasn't anything leveled at Travis. That's just how things were. And there were some other points uh, where there was a similar kind of rebuttal. Um, I think Taylor admitted that uh, the Lord Hand um, in the North, and I can't remember his name, who presented the award, uh, was in effect kind of rude uh, and dismissive of the new champion. Yeah, you basically had a, an Australian who is now a citizen of the United States winning their amateur championship, their pride <laughs> and joy. Yeah, exactly. Um, so there would be that. I, you know, I think there's a little bit of truth to it, and uh, and, and probably each side is its own version. But um, I can kind of understand just from the point that you mentioned that maybe Travis would not have been held in the highest regard, the highest esteem, and um, so that there is some, as I said, some truth to it uh, from both sides. Yeah. So there's a myth, Ed, that that follows that the Schenectady putter is that the British were so incensed, they immediately banned the Schenectady slash Travis putter upon winning the 1904 Amateur. That's not quite true, because it wasn't banned immediately after, but there was a contention to ban all mallet putters in 1910. Would you, you want to dive into that myth a little bit? And what actually transpired? Well, yeah, um, it certainly is true that, um, that there's a, the, the myth really um, was a very strong myth and very strong belief that yes, it was uh, the resentment of that club and his winning the am that caused it to be included in the ban. And I think I, I, I think Travis sort of felt that way. You know, they were responding in 1910. They were responding to a request from some group in New Zealand, maybe a club or a group or a, a group of people. And they were asking about the use of a mallet type of, um, like a croquet mallet, for yes, example. Yeah, and there were croquet, there were actually, there was a croquet champion, uh, Lord, I can't re- Tallenby, something like that, who actually yeah. putted that way. So I'm sure yeah. that part played a, a major part in that discussion, too. Yeah, so they wanted the RNA to make a ruling on whether this is a legitimate kind of putting, putter, or can be used legitimate within the rules. And, of course, then uh, the, when they made their ruling, they included such mallet-headed putters as the Schenectady. I, I guess you choose, <laughs> choose your position. And maybe there was some carryover. And it would make some sense that there would be some carryover from that 04 
British Am. And uh, so they seize on the opportunity with this ruling of malleted putters to include the Schenectady as a malleted putter, which in effect it is. But boy, what a firestorm of uh, controversy that triggered. And all the way up, all the way up to President Taft. Absolutely, and we're gonna we're gonna jump into that when we get into the American golfer section of this interview because I, I think that it, it deserves its own little realm of talk. So Travis writes that when he returned turned to America after playing the courses across the pond, that his eyes were open to golf course architecture. Travis again becomes an early adopter in the, in the shape of golf course design, which will soon spread across the United States. How did the courses of the United Kingdom open his eyes to golf design? Yeah, <clears throat> actually, that started in his trip um, even before the United. Yeah, it's like 1901, but, wasn't it? Something somewhere around there. Yeah, and um, he was certainly uh, impressed with the land on which those those courses were built. He was impressed with the with the kind of natural positioning the kind of strategic positioning of hazards, the lack of the kind of, you know, what word do I want to use? Um, thinking of these cross bunkers that were uh, typical of yeah, American... Yeah, the old gun- steeplechase kind of Victorian design bunker. Yeah. and um, Artificial is always a good word for that. Is a good, yeah. yeah, I think in the, the naturalness of those courses, he was also impressed with the difficulty of them. And I, he was firmly of the belief that the difficulty, uh, difficult courses uh, create skilled, increase the skill of the players, increases the skill, helps increase the skill of the players having to meet the, those kind of challenges. I don't know that I can say more about that, but certainly he wrote that article, uh, Impressions of Golf, that, and almost every one of the uh, courses, he had something good to say about it. He was impressed with their greens and the natural uh, uh, kind of contours and challenging and interesting kind of contours as they sort of followed the uh, the contour of the land, getting away from the kind of flat uh, greens that typified courses in this country. So I think that had a lot to do with his own ideas about the design and construction of uh, greens. Yeah. And you see a little bit of that in, in the book uh, Practical Golf, right? He he rallies against the the cross bunker that goes all the way across the fairway, right? He is looking at principles, which now we refer to as strategic golf design, which really That's were right. not present in 1901 in the United States no. versus, you know, going over the, the steeplechase bunkers, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think he saw getting it as strategic golf, though it's a term that maybe wasn't used in those days, but certainly, as he looked at the courses in in uh, in, in Great Britain, he uh, he recognized the kind of strategy that was required. That it really required some thinking kind of of golf. I think. I mean, those trips, that first trip, and then the second trip uh, when he had for the British Amp, uh, had a huge impact on him. And I'm a firmly believer it had a big impact on what was to come as far as golf in this country. Absolutely. You know, and to that point, I think while National Golf Links of America tends to get all of the credit for changing golf course design in America, Walter Travis and C.B. McDonald both were members at Garden City and used that club in kind of a way of experimentation 
to some of their changes they'd like to see in, in philosophy. How did that melting pot of those two gentlemen, as well as Emmett being part of Garden City, how yeah. did that help change the course of golf design in America? I mean, you have three brilliant minds, essentially, at Garden City engaging in you know, what would be the earliest days of maybe strategic golf design in America and ideas yeah. kind of spinning from that. I, I, I don't think you can overestimate the, the impact of, uh, on this country. Uh, and, and the courses in this country, especially with those three men being involved and both of them being um, respected spokesmen for the game, influential in that sense. DB is certainly in the Chicago area as well as the metropolitan New York area and, and both them, uh, Emmett and, and Travis. So, um, and it's interesting, and as you know, they actually brought over designs um, golf course features, greens, etc., et from Great Britain, from the British Isles, uh, to the National Golf Links. Absolutely, the template holes that we call them today. That's right, and um, and in those days, during that period of time when they were uh, uh, planning this, starting back in 1906, I think 07, uh, CB would send um, information to Travis. In fact, CB said something to Travis like, I hope you don't mind, but I've given your name and address as the address that people, if they are wanting to join this effort, he's looking for people, sponsors, people, well-to-do people who are willing to put down, I think it's a thousand bucks. Yeah. On this endeavor that's, and, and some people think this is a foolhardy endeavor, trying to recreate holes in America. So yeah. It wasn't something that was an automatic by any stretch. No. No, but I think it took the weight of um, uh, people like McDonald and Travis to be able to carry it off and to do it successfully. And then, of course, Emmett was involved. There was another fellow, Wiggum. Wiggum. That was actually uh, Charles Blair McDonald's son-in-law, the two-time U.S. Amateur champion. Is that right? Okay. He was, he was involved when they were picking out uh, the land and examining the land. Um, I know he paid a few visits to the place. Yeah. You know, I find funny about that when they talk about the land in the early days. I mean, I don't know if you've seen National Golf Links of America. It's an amazing property. But it really, the property really wasn't well respected from a piece of land before they started. No. And I love that. That I mean, it's just a spectacular piece of property and obviously an amazing golf course that helped shape our design history. But yeah. to think that it was just considered like an okay property from the onset, uh, probably just because of the horse and buggy and, you know, the way you'd manly have to take care of swamps and bushes, I'm sure. <laughs> it turned into much more than that, didn't it? I know. So, Ed, you know, Walter Travis, over his course of his career, he designs 50 golf courses or thereabout in a thereabout. very short period of time. His fingerprints exist on courses that don't even bear his name, like Pine Valley and National Golf Links of America. But he'll always be known for the renovation work at Garden City. Of all of his design contributions to the game of golf, what to you stands out? Yeah, yeah. Um, his greens are, I think, just incredible. Intricate, creative, challenging, beautiful. And, um, and I think they are, in effect, gaining in respect. It just, I'm impressed at the number of architects that I've come to know through this business who spend a lot of their time, take time to visit Travis courses to see his greens. 
I know it's not just his greens, because he's also respected, I think, for his rooting of the course, for his use of the kind of natural features of the land, then being able to create interest. I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. No, that's okay. You just you were talking about, you know, the the rooting of the courses and how they play out. I, I think I, I agree with you 100%. Uh, his green complexes are bold. And you have to love that about Travis, especially coming into or coming from a less than enthusiastic green structure of the era that preceded it, the Victorian area of golf. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, he, he seemed to be inspired by some of the great golf courses of the British Isles. Very much so. Very much so. And I think I think particularly in his uh, design of green complexes that, that the ideas for those uh, you can be traced back to what you saw in Great Britain and the kind of natural flow of greens there following the, you know, just the contour of the earth as it, as the wind has formed it or whatever natural forces had formed it. His efforts to sort of duplicate it, that kind of thing in his greens, I think is apparent. I, I, his, the, his rooting of courses. I, of course, am a very biased person at this point, but I think even before I became quite this biased, I just loved the flow and rhythm of, of our golf course and of, of other Travis courses now that I've played. And even on courses where maybe the land itself is not dramatic or spectacular or offer interesting kinds of features, but maybe lies along a, what was formerly a uh, lake bed, still, he was able to, to create interest just in the flow and the placement of, of, of the golf holes and through the placement of his hazards. Now, that's kind of another matter. I don't, um, I would love to have had an opportunity to have seen one of his golf courses, which with its original hats in place. I know at Hollywood Golf Club, uh, the Renaissance Company with uh, a, corp- a company with uh, um, yeah, and with Brian Schneider as being sort of the, the lead uh, designer there. I think they've done a, a marvelous job of recapturing the kind of interesting, wild kind of bunkering that Travis put there in 1970, 17, that he didn't do any place else. Uh, I should take that back. Some of the pictures I've seen of East Potomac Park of the original hazards that he created there are very similar to the hazards that he put in at, at Hollywood. But after that, when you get into the late teens, 19, late 1919, and especially into the early 20s, he started using a type of fairway hazard that uh, didn't last. I don't think there's any place where you can find, well, I, I know of a couple of golf courses, uh, Stafford uh, Country Club down in near the Catskills in New York State and Lookout Point over in southern Ontario. There's a, a one hole or two holes on each where there's a remnant of Travis's mounds and sand pits that he used as a hazard. Now, uh, I, off the top of my head, I can't tell you how many, but uh, on several, many of his golf courses in the early to mid twenties, describe those hazards for us. What would they What would they look like? They They would be think of chocolate. Think of chocolate drops. Yes. Yep. Okay? Think of a cluster of chocolate drops, 
And within that cluster of chocolate drops, there would be sand. He would put sand in there. Ooh, devilish. Yes. Devilish. Very devilish. Yeah. Not, you know, artistically, artistically, not, not beautiful sort of. Sure. Hat. It's not like some of these beautiful flowing. It's certainly not natural, right? And Or natural looking. That's right. When Tillinghast made his uh, countrywide trip in the 35, uh, 1935, uh, when he was employed by the PGA to go around and you mean that, that dreaded trip that everyone talks about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, he he labeled those um, hazards that um, Travis used for, uh, along the fairways as Duffer's headaches, and wherever he visited, he recommended that people take them out. He made that recommendation at, at, at my club and um, in '35. And they kept them for a long time, but they became, they were difficult to maintain. Um, and uh, finally, in 1947 or so, they took them out. But I would love to see some of those come back. That's, I was going to ask you that question. Would you want it back? I would like to see it, yeah. And now I know that it doesn't fit with the um, usual concept of fairway bunkering. And it's, in fact, it's very, very different. And it is severe, and it is difficult to maintain. Um, but um, but even you know, even if you could do it on one hole as kind of an homage to once what once was, it would be would, a pretty good tribute. Wouldn't that be a neat thing to do? Mm-hmm. I think so. Too. Yeah, I agree with you. So, Ed, let me ask you this before we move on from his design. Um, I'm sure you've played a lot of Travis courses. Does one stick out as your favorite and why? Well, I, you know, I hesitate to say that, but each one of them that I've played uh, has a lot to offer and I enjoy and I'd love to go back. I guess if I had one more, just one more shot at a Travis course, I'd love to go back to Cape Arundel. I don't know that um, you would call that a great course by any stretch of the imagination. But every time I drive into that place, I feel as if I'm going back in time and uh, stepping back and uh, to the early 1900s. It just has an old feeling about it. Yeah. Where is that course, Ed? It's in Kennebunkport, uh, Maine. It was uh, President George H.W. Bush's, uh, I don't know, home course, but he was a prominent member of that course. And kind of, again, they had their summer home in Kennebunkport. And uh, so he was there, I would guess, every day, along with other dignitaries that he brought in. But it's just, it's, uh, it's on a small piece of land. It's not a big course by any means, but it has some of the most wonderful Travis Green complex complexes that you'll find any place. And I think it's a pretty imaginative use of this small plot of land that sits along an estuary and so if I, I I'd like to go back there, but I there are other there, uh, I mean my home course I love Stafford Country Club here in Western New York. I only played uh, Hollywood once. I would love to see it now with uh, with the new bunkering. I'd love to go back to Westchester West when without uh, rain that's coming down with thirty uh, horizontally with thirty mile an hour rain winds. Right. Uh, I'd like to see it on a nice day. Um, I've been there before. You, it's like the, if the wind and rain are just 
pelting down on you so hard. It's so hard to remember the course. It really is. As you just try to survive your round. Uh, that's that's exactly what we were doing. And, uh, yeah, it was very different. You didn't stand around uh, admiring the features. <laughs> been there. I've been there too many times, I, I admit. I, I enjoy Country Club of, of Troy. Uh, Troy was the last of his courses that he um, visited for purposes of checking out how things were going with the construction. And it's on terrain that he would normally, I think, not prefer. It's quite hilly. But the way that he made use of that terrain terrain is uh, really fascinating, interesting, a lot of fun. And again, some wonderful, wonderful green sites. I, I, I find that some of the greatest greens, I mean, Willie Park was known for his greens too, are usually built by people who are amazing putters. Uh, <laughs> I wonder if there's a coincidence there. I wonder. Right? I, I, I think there's a pretty good correlation there. Yeah. Put, put the strength, if you're a short hitter, make the uh, complications of the green that much better. Exactly. <laughs> so by 1908, Walter Travis has won four majors. He's won three U.S. Amateurs. He's the first golfer in U.S. history to win three U.S. Amateurs. Uh, the first, he becomes the first three-time U.S. Amateur winner, and he wins the British Amateur. He has written two books, Practical Golf and the Art of Putting, oddly named the same name as Willie Park's book. And his golf designs are popping up all over the country. But in 1909, he starts a magazine. Can you tell us a little bit about the American golfer? Yeah, actually, the first uh, issue was November of 08. It, um, well, I know it became a highly respected, highly regarded magazine. It's, it's um, what can I say about it? Well, let me say this, and then you can respond. So... I look at American Golfer. I'm a big fan. I've read many of their uh, periodicals over the years. It was a different kind of magazine, as it just didn't report golf happenings or golf instruction. In my opinion, it also served as a mechanism for debate. Maybe dig into how the American Golfer changed golf publishing in America to actually forward the thinking of golf versus the instruction or the happenings in the game. I, 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 yeah, I agree with that completely. And he touched on, on many, many issues and invited a commentary um, and articles from other, uh, from other writers and other journalists. And um, it, it did address lots of issues uh, related to either golf course design, golf course play. He touched on uh, women's uh, golf uh, and wrote a interesting editorial about women's golf. The magazine included uh, input and information, uh, interesting kinds of information, not just about tournaments, but about what was, just what was going on about golf from different regions of the country. So it was sort of a, it's a magazine that certainly had a national interest uh, from that regard. I, I just think it is, I think it is uh, a remarkable part of his career that he was able to take that magazine uh, and, and, and develop it into something that I think was highly regarded, you know, for Grantland Rice to come in and take over it. Exactly. I was just going to say that. I mean, that's how powerful of a, a golf medium it was, yes. right? Yes, exactly. I don't think Grantland would have taken a second look at it if it weren't really a top-notch a magazine that he saw had a lot of potential and was already doing a great job and 
But um, so it's impressive. And but to think that he did all this while he's also off designing golf courses, and before that he was playing successfully in tournaments. He was a busy guy. He had, he had a lot on his plate. I think there's two things that stand out for me with the American golfer. One is it's one of the first golf uh, periodicals, specifically in the Amer- in America, that really yes. dives a little bit deeper into golf course architecture. I think a lot of magazines prior didn't go as deep. And I think with the publisher and founder of the magazine being Walter Travis, it gave him a springboard to talk about those issues. But my favorite, my favorite piece of the American golfer is his rather public debates that come back to something we talked to earlier, the 1910 ban by the RNA on the mallet putter. Uh, from its inception, the USJ has always taken the lead, had taken the lead from the RNA. Uh, one of our golfing forefathers, C.B. McDonald, wanted to really keep it that way. I think it's fair. He wanted the USJ to always just be in line with the RNA. But Walter Travis fought vigorously, both vocally and in print, Maybe share a little bit of that story, because I think it's fascinating, of how Travis used the American golfer to drive home his point about the mallet ban in 1910 and how the USGA should forge its own direction. He made maximum use. Oh, I mean, they're almost scathing. I mean, for the time period, you could say some of his comments are scathing. They are scathing, yeah. And um, sometimes a little over the top, but... uh, he was really fierce in his art, and, and uh, I thought articulate in his argument. He, <laughs> fortunately for him, I guess, and for the argument, he had uh, this uh, direct pipeline to the president. And um, I mean, they played a lot of golf, to, quite a bit of golf together. And uh, up to that point, I, I, I don't remember when they first played. I think maybe nine, perhaps after eight. But anyway, they played golf together. And here you have the president sending a letter commenting on this uh, uh, this uh, controversy. Is that Taft? Uh, Taft, yeah, Taft. I guess he was probably the first uh, golfing president, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Yeah, William Howard Taft. Yeah. You bet. Yeah. And uh, probably got a few tips from uh, Travis. But anyway, and Travis made maximum use of his magazine, of his of that medium to uh, express his uh, disagreement with it and to uh, detail his many uh, reasons for his criticisms. And and he was able to attract, the other day I was look, uh, looking at that, uh, one of the, I think it's the March 1910 American golfer. It is packed full of letters from, I assume, people, golfers, and some of them, some names that you recognize, of people uh, joining in with this argument and this complaint and agreeing with Travis's position. I mean, to be fair, he was the publisher, so he could have kept the objections out. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying, if you're driving home a point, that's a good way to do it. Well, that's, I bet, I bet that's where that is the case. Sure. But the funny thing is, you know, he won the argument and kind of lost the argument, right? Because the USGA, weirdly enough, they decide to adopt the rule, but with exceptions. Is that a fair way to put in it? Well, I know they excluded the... the uh, yeah. Sc- yeah. Which was certainly a mallet putter. Yeah. 
Yeah, so that's that's kind of a strange uh, twist, isn't it? Um, yeah, I guess I for some reason I hadn't really thought of that that they agreed with the RNA except yeah. for connected. Here's an exception to it, which is clearly a mallet putter, by the way, center shafted, large head. <laughs> it's all those things that you want banned. We're going to agree with you, and, and I think probably to appease both uh, 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 CB McDonald and Travis said, yes, we're going to agree with you. We're going to yes. stand in line, but we're going to have this little out clause, this little asterisk that allows the Schenectady putter. To continue, yeah, yeah. And, and even weirder, or, or perhaps even worse, I guess the outcome comes without, not without casualty, right? One of them appears to be the relationship which disintegrated between Charles Blair McDonald and Walter Travis. Yeah, yes. I, I think that was, the, um, that was the controversy that really started it. Because up to that point, they really were, I would say they were friends. They played a lot of golf together. And CB uh, trusted uh, Travis to handle uh, correspondence uh, about the NGLA, as well as keep the repository of the golf hole designs that he sent them. So there was something about CB's action or lack of action with the RNA. He was a, like an honorary member of that committee. He was, yeah. Sure. Yes, he was the correspondent from the USGA for yeah. the RNA, yes. So... There was something about how he handled that uh, Schenectady uh, controversy that got under Travis's skin that Travis didn't agree with. And I think Travis sort of held him responsible for permitting the RNA to go ahead with that ruling. That he, did, that he didn't put up enough of a fuss, enough of a disagreement, enough of an argument. Um, to exclude the Schenectady. That's just my... No, I agree. I agree 100%. I think if you look, and then over a decade later, Charles Blair McDonald publishes his book, and essentially, I mean, I think it's fair to say he kind of disavows any real effort from Walter Travis in correlation with the National Golf Links of America. It's kind of like the final, like, you know, bomb to drop. Like, ah, you know, he wasn't really involved. Yeah, the final gotcha. The final gotcha. Yeah, he did. I mean, that's a good book. You need to write that book. How about the war between McDonald and Travis, right? I mean, it's because it's fascinating. I, I think it's one of these cool little, you know, side stories within golf's history where you have two of these greats, right? One, a three-time U.S. Amateur champion, the, the other one being the first amateur champion. And they're going head-to-head over the future of golf in America and they go so far hard at each other that they never really repair what has been done. Have you met Mike Serba? I've met him in passing, and I doubt he would ever remember meeting me. I was an unimpressive person when I met him. <laughs> Not that I'm impressive now, everyone. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm gonna, I'll talk with Mike about that. He wrote a really interesting and detailed account titled how Walter Travis was dropped from the NGLA project. That, that's probably not the exact title, but something to that regard of how was it that Travis was dropped from this project. And basically it has to do with the McDonald-Travis relationship and how that deteriorated um, resulted in, in Travis being dropped from it. So I think to some extent that article has already been written. 
Oh, that's great. Maybe I need, Mike, this is your chance. If you're listening right now, let's have you on the show and hash it out. I bet he would love to do that. I'd love it. I think it'd be great. Great story. I'll make sure he knows about this. Okay. (laughs) I bet he does already. One thing I've suggested to Mike is that Mike is on the Travis Society History Committee, along with um, Joe Bausch, who's um, a Philadelphia guy. And um, anyway, I've, I've suggested to Mike, you ought to write a paper about what happened to the Deborah Emmett and Travis relationship. Yeah. Excellent one. I mean, I I don't know the details of that. I am fairly sure it has um, something, if not a lot, to do with um, Garden City Golf Club and maybe conflicting roles in terms of making changes to the golf course. I know that at some point, Deborah Emmett uh, was responsible for changing or removing some of the features that Travis had put in. But um, I have this note that uh, from uh, April 9th, 1921, says, My dear Travis, we were friends so long, and I have always regretted our estrangement. Cannot we be friends again? Oh, that's kind of sad. Do we know if there was a response? No, we don't. Oh, man. But, you know, maybe there was someplace, and maybe we haven't found it. Um, uh, I have not had the opportunity opportunity to examine all of the USGA uh, collection of Travis artifacts. And um, I know that LeBance went, th- went there. One of our old uh, Travis Society members who's since passed, who did an incredible amount of research for us, spent a couple weeks each day at the USGA, and I know he got a lot of stuff, but I'm just thinking maybe someplace there, there's a response from Travis. Right. I mean, I think diving into both those relationships and how they played out would just be a fascinating story. Yeah, yeah. Both architects, uh, all three architects, I should say. But, you know, speaking of golfers, I mean, Walter Travis had great connections with other golfers. Maybe if you could go into how he responded with the younger generation of golf's rising stars, like for instance, Francis, we met. I, you know, I don't know exactly uh, the full nature. I know very little about the relationship between the two of them. I do know that uh, we met published an article in which he gave um, Travis a great deal of, of uh, credit for his success uh, in terms of just uh, understanding the game, the way he, was, he went about the game. And, um, I mean, there's no specific thing. It wasn't like with this putting as it was with Bobby Jones. But um, it was a, um, just a general sort of comment um, that we met, credited him with, uh, you know, that in effect I would not have had the success I had had I not learned uh, some things from Travis. Interesting. You know, it's just- I- you kind of alluded to this too, though, but uh, one of my favorite golf stories of all time, uh, one that I love to tell, a putting lesson that was set up for a pupil who was late. And that pupil would then have to wait years to reschedule that lesson with Walter Travis. Maybe you could share that story about a fantastic golfer out of Atlanta who was late for his putting lesson and had to wait. Well, we're talking about Bobby Jones. Yeah. And he was a. a, 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 a Pretty much a kid at the time. 
Yeah, I think it was uh, like 1916, somewhere around there. Yeah, yeah. They had uh, uh, set up a, a, a time that uh, uh, he was going to meet Travis in the locker room. I think it, it was in Atlantic City uh, Country Club. Yeah, it could be right. I know that Travis saw something in Bobby Jones's putting stroke that he didn't like. And he was like, if you come and meet me, I'll fix you up and, you know, we'll, you know, we'll, we can fix the problem in short time. Yeah. And uh, as it turns out, Travis was there. I'm just looking for the specific of it. But anyway, you, you, as you alluded to earlier, Bobby Jones arrived several minutes, actually. Actually, it was quite a bit of time later, half hour or something like that. Yeah, missed a train or something like that. There was some connection that he missed, correct? Yeah. By that time, um, Travis had gone. But what was it? Um, was it eight years later? Yeah. I mean, it was. I think it was one year into Bobby Jones' first victory that Walter Travis finally shows up, or I guess Bobby Jones shows up to get that lesson, which is another amazing story. It is an amazing story. And, and yeah, that lesson did take place, and Bobby Jones did credit him later in his book, as I understand, uh, did credit Travis with kind of turning things around for him as far as putting his concern. Jack White is another person that, um, you know, Jack White was, uh, is, uh, I guess, co-author of The Art of Putting. And Jack White uh, won the, um, I think it was the 05 um, British Open. Actually, I think it was the 04. I think it, was, I think it occurred just after the AM. Anyway, what he said was, I probably would not have won that British Am had I not followed Travis throughout the British Am and watched how he went about his game. And um, I don't remember some of the specific things that he noted about Travis's behavior, but it's just the general way that he approached his game that impressed him and caused him to kind of rethink how he approached the game, how he played it. And he really credited him. He said, I don't think I would have won that British Open if I had not seen Travis play. I didn't know that story, Ed. Yeah, it's kind of remarkable. Yeah. And I always tell people, like, specifically Bobby Jones. I mean, Bob Jones gets this lesson from Walter Travis, basically keep your feet closer together, and I believe hit the ball like there's a tack on it. You want to basically nail in the tack. And from that point on, I think it's you could arguably you could argue that he's the best putter of his generation, one of the greatest putters of all time. After that lesson, and I, and I know that I'm sure that he, I'm fairly sure I have someplace there a reference where he, uh, in his book, Bobby Jones credited Travis with that. I just I want to read you also what Matt said. Yeah, that'd be great. He uh, he was visiting uh, the uh, the golf club, Arden City Golf Club. After the round of golf, uh, Travis and, and we met, and one of the members went uh, went into the clubhouse, and he says, Mr. Travis, who probably has made as deep a study of the game as any man in the world, began to explain how he played different shots. His explanations opened my eyes in two ways. One was that I was rather astonished to hear him tell so clearly and minutely exactly how he played each shot so that any person who had watched him play as closely as I had could have a clear mental vision of each movement of his club and body. The other thing that struck me most forcibly as I listened was how little I actually knew 
about how I played shots myself. Put the club in my hand, let me get out to play a shot, and I felt confident of being able to do it. But to sit down and tell somebody else how I did, I realized was beyond me. From that time to the present, and he goes on to explain how he began to apply that uh, kind of principle uh, that he learned from Travis. It's kind of remarkable. What an amazing quote, yeah. right? Yeah, it is. The it thinking is. man's golfer. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, wow. Uh, you know, and above all things, Walter Travis was a golfer, right? I, I saw a stat, Ed, and it might have been your stat, uh, that Walter Travis won 80% of his matches, which has only been taught by two golfers in history, Bobby Jones and We Met. Do we have a handle on how many trophies he collected over his entire career? <laughs> I think we have a handle on it. The fellow I mentioned before, Rudy Zaki, who had done all of the research, he started a, um, to put together a complete record of, um, complete competitive record of Travis's. He passed away now two or three years ago. Another person, a, a member of, of the history committee, Steve Kubiak, has taken, actually it was his idea originally, but Steve has picked up on that and has has in expanded, has um, refined uh, this spreadsheet that pre- pre- presents the complete competitive record of Walter Travis. I'll have to ask Steve, do we have a count of the number of cups and trophies that uh, Travis won? I bet, I bet he could give me that. I mean, do you think it's in the hundreds? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, if you're talking about club, all these clubs, Sure, sure, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's just remarkable how much time he uh, spent playing golf. (laughs) Makes me wonder about how much time he's spending back at the office. That's right, that's right. It runs itself, you know, (laughs) and it runs itself. You know, for, for all these accomplishments, through all these stories that we share today, it's hard to imagine that he started playing golf a couple months shy of his 35th birthday. And all of these accomplishments that we just talked about literally took place inside of a 30-year window because he died at the age of 65. Um, Ed, I, I asked you at the beginning of this podcast why you were drawn to Walter Travis. Looking back on what we've recorded, the answer for our listeners should be obvious. So I guess let me ask you this. What should our audience take away from the life and times of Walter Travis? That he was a man who made the most of, uh, of his abilities, his interests, his motivations to accomplish just remarkable achievements um, uh, in the game of golf. And not just as a player, as a thinker, as a writer, a guy who had a, an amazing skill uh, to put his ideas on paper, to put his knowledge on paper. He contributed to the world's understanding of the game, uh, the world's understanding of the playgrounds on which the game is played, of the grasses that grow on those playgrounds, of the kind of equipment that we use to play the game, and of the importance of, of a dedicated, focused, systematic kind of practice of the game, a dedication to the game if you want to play it at a... At, at a high level. He was a a remarkable man who I think 
could easily be said to have been the most influential individual in the development of the game of golf in the United States. I, I don't. I, I don't disagree with you there. I, I think that's. I, I don't even know how it's not a sure. I'm looking at an outline that I've created for the bibliography that I've been working on. I've had to kind of put it aside recently, but it's a listing of Travis's published writings. I look at the categories. I mean, it's just not. If you exclude all those editorials that he wrote in every um, every American golfer uh, is around the co- right. around the nineteenth hole column. But he wrote on golf course design and construction, the care and maintenance of golf courses, golf equipment, golf course reviews, analyses, critiques, golf rules, golf competition format, golf instruction, and plus his autobiographical um, pieces that he did. He published in all of the terrific magazines, great, most popular magazines of the day. It's I, I mean, just his career as a journalist it seems to me is um, yeah it would be Hall of Fame worthy if that had, it was yeah. all he had done it still would be worthy of I being agree. in the Hall of Fame yeah Ed thank you so much for joining us on this exceptional show today I well, truly you were appreciate right. it this was fun yeah, it was fun Connor thank you for the opportunity oh absolutely it's okay. my pleasure trust me folks at home Walter Travis Just like one of his literary teachers, Willie Park Jr., was a Renaissance man. He was a champion golfer, an author, a golf course architect, teacher, and publisher. Though he only spent 30 years in the game of golf, his presence in the last 93 years have been profound. Every time you play a golf course in the United States, his design philosophies can be felt. He is gone, but never far from the game we all choose to love. Yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis. Mm -hmm.